0: Hi, this is Greg from Explore Maps in Missoula, Montana. We're excited to collaborate with the Trail Less Travel, helping connect people and place through art and storytelling. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to the Trailless Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at TraillessTravel.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela.
2: We are on location in southern Baja, a stone's throw from the Sea of Cortez. We're on an unnamed island, about a 45-minute paddle from base camp. On the Sea of Cortez, we are speaking with Gary Steele, known as Germo in Mexico. Gary is the ultimate adventurer on land via footstep, dual sport motorcycle and mule, and on water via whitewater kayak, sea kayak, and sailboat. Gary has explored Baja California Sur on the Sea of Cortez, on his motorcycle, his 17-foot sea kayak, the back of a mule, and on foot. Gary was a backpacking and sea kayaking guide in Yellowstone National Park for eight years and has been calling Montana home for the past 35 years. Gary, thank you so much for inviting us here to come join you in Baja and the other adventures you've taken me on.
3: Well, this is quite an experience being here with Mandela and my friends. We are having a grand adventure on a little island about two miles offshore, looking onto the Sierra Daylight La Giganticus, a beautiful range of mountains.
2: So Gary, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood?
3: I grew up in Phoenix. I was born there, went all through kindergarten, grade school and high school there. During the time I was growing up, I lived on the north edge of Phoenix, which is no longer the north edge of Phoenix. I was fortunate enough to have orange orchards and cotton fields and irrigation ditches. Things like that, kind of close to where I grew up. And I had a bicycle, so I would ride, I would seek out those wild places to get off of the pavement and out of the grid. I was lucky that there was a few remnants of what a little boy would consider wild places. So I would seek those out on my bike. As I got a little bit older, then I could uh, go out into the Sonoran Desert. My dad would take me out there we'd go shooting 22s or shotguns and go hiking around and exploring and the Sonoran Desert was a fantastic place biological diversity is just outrageous especially when you're a little boy cactus I had to learn about cactus oh my god some people learned hard some people learned easy I was mostly fortunate with cactus one thing about cactus is it sure teaches you to pay attention to your surroundings along with rattlesnakes out there too always got to be looking out for them I was also fortunate that my dad's job was construction work. He'd build houses all over the state of Arizona. Whenever he could, he would take me with him, and we would go for a week or 10 days at a time, camp out in a little trailer, and in some pretty remote areas of Arizona. So I'd help my dad with building these houses scattered all across Arizona. We'd see some really interesting places and get to stay there. And that helped show me, I think, that there was a lot more to life than the grid of Phoenix. I remember when I was about eight or nine, I was rambling the alleys of our neighborhood on my bicycle, and I found an old bow, as in bow and arrows. It was a wooden long bow, had a crack in the handle. I took it home and I taped it up, put some glue in there talked my dad into buying me some bales of straw for the backyard and I had my own little archery range in the backyard. That was so neat for a little kid like me to have. Got pretty efficient at a bow. I was, put pennies up on the bales and I would shoot the pennies. But that later on developed into a passion for all archery and, a, and as I got older I got into bow hunting. When I was about 14 years old I got my first horse which was a little hard to do in Phoenix, but I had to board him about a mile and a half away in a little more of a rural neighborhood. And I learned to ride my horse. In Phoenix, we could either ride down the streets or ride around in an arena, around in circles and circles and circles. But I did learn to ride pretty well, I think. I got along with my horse well. I remember when I was, oh, maybe 15 or so, Some of my friends invited me to go on a horse ride up in the pine trees of the Mogollon Rim area outside of Phoenix. So that was the first time I got to ride my horse in the forest. Riding in the forest, I just that woke me up so much as to, wow, this is possible. I can actually ride my horse in the woods like this. Well, I didn't want to go back to Phoenix at all, but I did. I could have just stayed out there and again later on in life i got into horses big time after i moved to montana i I had my own pack string and rode in the bob marshall a lot also when i was growing up every kid i think or at least this kid had to go through the motorcycle phase so uh, i talked my dad into letting me get my first motorcycle when i was oh around 13 or 14. it was a yamaha 100 and that was such a treat for a kid like me to have. And then I could travel around. I went out in the desert. I could venture into the desert much more easily with my little motorcycle. Eventually, my motorcycles kept getting bigger and bigger. And I kept becoming more and more of a rebel. And as time went on, I, I guess I graduated into great big chopper-type motorcycles and I became a kind of a uh, what one might call an outlaw biker a rebellious child. I really didn't know what I was rebelling against at that time. But I knew that something didn't feel right in Phoenix. It was too much, I don't know what it was, authority or control or conformity. But I was a very rebellious child. And when I found motorcycles, that was one of the ways that I could express those feelings. Another way I could express those feelings that I found out, and I didn't even know what I was doing at the time, I started backpacking. I became a fanatic backpacker. I would backpack so I could bow hunt. We'd backpack way into the mountains someplace and spend four or five or six days back there hunting deer and javelina and jackrabbits with our bow and arrows. When I was out there, I always felt like totally free. I'm my own man out here. Nobody's telling me what to do. I never broke the hunting rules because I always feel that, that they were a good idea, and that was a thing of ethics more than control. Out there, nobody was telling me what to do. I could look over vast mountain ranges, and the wildlife was just running all over the place. It was uh, a good, good place to be. And I guess later on in life, it it came to the point where I had to make a decision between the motorcycle life and the backpacking, wild country life. And uh, because of a motorcycle wreck I had, which I woke up in the hospital five or six days after the wreck, walked in front of the mirror on the way to the bathroom and about threw up when I seen myself in the mirror. My face was gone amazingly I healed up from that and I was also maturing enough to realize that if I continued on this path I was dead I wasn't going to survive this motorcycle outlaw phase of my life but at the same time I could go out backpacking and get into the backcountry and there was that phase of my life that started having a stronger and stronger draw on me so I am very thankful that I had the insight, or luck, whatever the case would be, to make that decision. Incidentally, I am about 60 years old now. When I was 18 years old, I swore I would never live to be 20. And I almost didn't make it.
2: We are on location in southern Baja, a stone's throw from the Sea of Cortez on an unnamed island. I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine, an adventure buddy, gary Steele. gary is the ultimate adventurer on land via footstep motorcycle and mule and on water via whitewater kayak sea kayak and sailboat gary has explored baja on the sea of cortez on his motorcycle his 17-foot sea kayak the back of a mule and on foot gary was a backpacking and sea kayaking guide in yellowstone national park for eight years and has been calling montana home for the past 35 years Gary, without giving it away, because this place is unnamed. What are you looking at right now?
3: I'm sitting on a kind of a moon-shaped sandy beach with rock outcroppings on each side. About two miles across the water that's in front of me is the Sierra de la Giganticas, a huge mountain range that looks a lot like the Superstition Mountains of Arizona. Grand escarpments of rock, rising nearly vertical. A skyline that looks something like a saw-teeth. Pelicans are floating across the water about two feet above the water right in front of me. Sometimes they'll be diving into the water coming up with fish. There's a blue-footed booby sitting over there on the rock and there's also brown boobies here. Many times there is Magnificent frigate birds soaring overhead in the thermals. There's cordon cactuses on the side of the island that uh, circles around to my right. I see a cave up above me on the hillside that I know is a uh, archeological site. Uh, I've been up there uh, several times last year. There's uh, some matates up there in a uh, midden of broken shells down below the cave. If you know where to look, you can see a little bit of a white streak on the hillside below the caves. Looking out across the mainland, I see one of the taller peaks there. The locals here call it Hotel Buffalo because up on top of the mountain, there's a huge cave that you can ride horses and mules in. And it's right on the divide of the peninsula. It's like the Continental Divide, but this is the Peninsula Divide. And it's only about three or four miles inland from this shore, but on the, to the Pacific side, it ranges about, oh, 50 miles over there. I know this one particular peak because, oh, about 10, 15 years ago, I went with some of my friends up into the peak. We rode mules with my friend Alejo and his family, Uh, Alejo is a mule guide here. He took us in there, we spent the night. We were the first gringos to ever get up to the top of this mountain and get to camp inside this cave. My ranch family that I've known for 25 years here, I can just barely see their little ranch village off the point here over on the mainland. I've watched the family grow throughout the years, and I am so fortunate to have a family like this that will include me in their family.
2: We are on location in southern Baja, a stone's throw from the Sea of Cortez on an unnamed island. Right now we're looking at a very large mountain range on mainland about two miles off the coast of this island. Turquoise water, pelicans all around, an amazing view, an amazing adventure. And I'm here with my friend Gary Steele, who has been traveling down to Baja for the past 25 years. He's gone down here via dual-sport motorcycle, his 17-foot sea kayak, mule on foot. This time we drove a large van down. And we paddled about 45 minutes from base camp to this wonderful, as Gary describes it, moon-shaped beach. And a little inlet here after we're done with this segment. I think we might go for a snorkel. Gary, I'd like to ask you about the next phase in your life when you stopped motorcycling for a short period of time to hitchhiking, I believe, and you did a bit of hitchhiking around America to check out the mountains and the rivers and some of the other states like Idaho and Montana.
3: Shortly after the motorcycle wreck, I decided it was time to branch out, see areas outside of Arizona. I always wanted to see the the Rocky Mountains that had a huge draw for me. The Northwest when I was about 18 I threw some stuff in a backpack and told my folks I'll see you later I'm be gone for a while and I stuck my thumb out and headed north went through Utah Idaho and uh, went up to Montana Yellowstone Park went back to Idaho where I met a friend and I ended up staying there for a couple of weeks And while we were there, we did some outings into the Rocky Mountains near Yellowstone Park. And uh, I just fell in love with the area. It had everything I want, everything that I didn't have in life. It was trees, water, lakes, rivers, mountains, and solitude, which you can't get none of that in Phoenix. So I fell in love with the Northwest. After I left my friend's house in Idaho, I continued on over through Washington, Oregon, California. Had some grand adventures along the way. I think it's a perfect thing for an 18-year-old to do, get out, see what's out there, see what the options are in life. I went back to Montana. A few years went on. Got married. Moved to Flagstaff. Well, I I guess I should include, I went to the University of Northern Arizona for, one semester. Back then, I, my, in my infinite wisdom of youth, I thought that if I did not find a woman partner, then all of the good ones would be taken. So I went to the university one semester, got married. First, I moved to Window Rock, Arizona, where I was building houses for the Navajos. And I moved to Flagstaff, where I was building houses there. But even though I was trying to settle down in the Arizona, and Flagstaff was huge leaps and bounds ahead of phoenix Uh, there was still a calling for montana the rocky mountains so at one point i called my brother up and i said mark you want to do me a favor he goes sure what's that would you take me to montana and he goes sure didn't even hesitate so a couple weeks later we had his pickup Uh, i loaded my toolbox in it my dog My brother said I could have his 10-speed bicycle because I was going to need some way to get around once I got there. And I had about a 100 bucks in my pocket. And away we went. I told my wife, I'm going to Montana. You're staying here. I can remember tears in my eyes as I left. It was monumental for me to make that break. But... uh, in hindsight, when I look back in life to those many years ago, I think that was one of the most important decisions I've made in my entire life. My brother dropped me off in Missoula, Montana, where my friend Dave lived, that I had met in Idaho several years earlier. I was 23 years old at this time. That was 1976, getting ready for the bicentennial. I lived up on Blue Mountain with my friend Dave. He had a bus up in the woods, a trampoline, deck. It was wonderful. Cedar trees and fir trees overhanging the bus and the trampoline and a little creek flowing under the deck. Life was wonderful in Montana. Soon I had a job hanging drywall in Missoula. It didn't take me too long to figure out that I knew more about what I was doing than the people I was working for thanks to working with my dad for so many years so I had my own business my own drywall business after I'd been here oh two or three months maybe less than that life was good my friend Drome had been my childhood friend I knew Drome since first grade well since before first grade All through grade school, all through high school, and afterwards, he was my buddy. He was my motorcycle buddy. He was my hunting buddy. We did everything together. He went working with me and my dad. Jerome came up to Montana, and he started working with me, doing drywall. Uh, This was boom time in Missoula at the time, so there was work abound. It was not a problem. I had some of my other friends working for me also. And my buddy and Jerome and I, we bought a hang glider together. Oh, what grand adventure this is going to be. Flying. What a dream come true. Jerome had been in the military before. He was special forces. He was trained in rappelling and parachuting. And he'd done all that fun stuff. Uh, Luckily, he got to miss the war. Out of the military and he came here. So when we started hang gliding, he just excelled in it. Me, I broke my arm first day of lessons, which was disappointing at the time. But Jerome, he excelled, and he was doing 45-minute flights above Sentinel and Jumbo. and So I was working one day, and he was out flying. And one of my friends showed up on the job and said, hey, Jerome just took it into Mount Jumbo, hit pretty hard. He's in the hospital. Anyway, to make a long story short, Jerome hit Mountain Jumbo really hard. uh, Suffered permanent brain damage. That's been somewhere around 35 years ago now. He's still alive. He drools. Can't walk. Has to be taken care of all the time. So that was another wake-up call. Well, I don't know if I could call it that but uh, that was a mile post in my life. So as wonderful as moving to Montana can be, it can be just as awful.
0: Hello, this is Greg Robitaille from Explore Maps in Missoula, Montana. For as long as I can remember, I have been amazed at how my brother Chris turns his creative thoughts into the most incredible art imaginable. When we were young kids growing up in Toronto, one day our mom said, Chris, please go take a nap. But as fate would have it, I think he heard mom say, Chris, go make a map. And thus, I like to think that's when Explorer Maps was born. Many years later, we have now rendered more than 60 hand-drawn artistic story maps of travel destinations worldwide. All created with the intention of connecting people and place and helping communities raise awareness for the conservation of our public lands and the wildlife and distinct cultures that inhabit these amazing areas. So please come along and join Chris and I on this educational and inspirational journey using hand-drawn maps as the vessel to help tell these unique stories. Please be sure to use promo code MANDELA for your discount when visiting explorermaps.com
2: We are on location in Baja California Sur on the Sea of Cortez. We're looking out from the beach to a couple, half-dozen different unnamed islands. I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine, an adventure partner, Gary Steele. Gary has been traveling down to Baja, California for the past 25 years. This time we drove a van down, his van, his new van, the Funhog 3. And in the past, Gary's traveled down here via dual-sport motorcycle on the back of a mule and by foot, along with his 17-foot sea kayak. Gary has a vast history of adventuring throughout the United States. Early childhood in Arizona, leading him to Montana. Gary moved to Montana in 1976. And that's where we're going to pick up now, Gary, is that move to the missions. An amazing mountain range. When you drive from Missoula to St. Ignatius or anywhere near the missions, and you come over that rise. I still want to stop every single time and pull over and look at it, especially now, this time of year, where it's probably covered in snow. But down in Baja, the sun is out. There is no snow anywhere. Gary, tell us about that move for you to the missions. Well, when I moved to Missoula,
3: I built a cabin up on Blue Mountain for a friend, and I got to live there for three years in exchange for building it. And during that time, I was looking for a piece of land someplace. It was just my dream to have a piece of land. And I looked up the Bitterroot and I looked up all around Missoula, but I had never been north. But the first time I went over that Bison Range Hill and the whole Mission Valley unfolded before me, I go, wow, this is it. And uh, I just happened to find uh, 20 acres there. I bought it and... It was right at the base of the missions. I was looking right up across my little meadow, right up at the peaks of East and West St. Mary's Peaks. I could watch goats and bears and all right from my little piece of property there. When I first moved there, I think I was 27 years old at this point, 26, 27, I can't remember. I set a teepee up. I made my own teepee, set my teepee up. All of a sudden I had my own piece of property in the woods, in the mountains, I had a teepee to live in, and life was about as good as it ever gets for this child. As the fall went on I started building a small log cabin, and when the fall got colder I was able to move into that. But I was living the life of what I thought was a mountain man, what I considered at that time was a modern-day mountain man. I uh, had no electricity. I hauled my own water. I used uh, kerosene lamps for light. I learned how to make buckskin from the hides of the deer that I would get and eat. Life was just good. I bought some horses, started riding in the mountains. A friend of mine, Art Anderson, he showed me how to pack. He was my mentor in packing. And I started making my own pack saddle equipment. I learned everything I could on the art of packing. And then I started uh, packing in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And I would go in for three or four weeks at a time with my little string of horses, pack mule. My wife rode one horse, I rode another horse, and we had one or two pack animals with us, along with a couple of dogs. And we would go into the Bob Marshall, the great bear, the scapegoat. We would ride all the major river drainages and this was fairly early in the season in June, so there wasn't a lot of people in there yet. As long as it wasn't raining, it was wonderful, but it did rain a lot. We would see grizzly bears and black bears and herds of elk and seen a wolf way back then. That was, that was odd, right at the base of the Chinese wall. That all really solidified my love for the backcountry. I was finally able to experience it in the fullest extent that I thought was possible to do. I considered then and I still consider the backcountry of Montana, all the roadless backcountry, as some of the crown jewels of the United States. We are so fortunate to have all this wild country here, just to go wander through. A Couple years after I moved to the missions, I was fortunate enough to befriend Edward Abbey. And Ed liked me, he said I walked my talk. And I liked Ed because Ed was probably the number one hero in my life. Ed probably changed my life more than anyone. I had no idea there was people out there that thought along the same lines that I did. I thought I was the only one. Ed had a big influence, and then get to be friends with him, that was amazing. Ed introduced me during the course of the conversation. I heard something about an organization called Earth First, and I go, huh, what's that? I go, Ed, what's Earth First? He goes, it's a racket. But then he started to explain more of it to me. I became quite enchanted by their philosophy, kind of a no compromise stand in the defense of Mother Earth. So I started learning more about that. I eventually became an activist. I was representing Montana Earth First, which at that time was basically me and About a half a dozen or dozen of my friends who kind of thought the same way I did about our wild country in Montana and that this should be protected. So I believe it was 84. Each year, the Earth First organization did a rendezvous someplace in the United States where they thought attention needed to be focused on one issue or another. And that year I told them I would arrange it in Heron, Montana. So I arranged it and we had a great rendezvous in Heron. A lot of really interesting people came together. But what brought the whole rendezvous to Montana was a bill up in Congress. They were calling it the Wilderness Bill. I can't remember the numbers to it or anything. But basically what this bill would have done if it would have passed, at that point we had like 6.5 million acres of unprotected roadless lands in montana which isn't really very much this bill would have protected three quarters of a million acres of that land as wilderness and the rest would have been released what they call release language and i had never heard anything about release language up until this But what that means is that if these millions of acres are not designated wilderness, they have to be developed. They can never again be considered for roadless protection. And I thought, what kind of is this? So I was pretty outraged about this whole deal. And the local wilderness club Our organization at that time was the Montana Wilderness Association. And they were willing to sign off on this bill because they got three-quarters of a million acres of wilderness out of it, which would make their hats all look nice and shiny. But the Montana people were going to really lose all this land. And roadless land is so important, and uh, having good elk herds, which in turn means great elk hunting and wildlife habitat for all the critters. So I came up with the idea when we was at the rendezvous is we need to bring the presence of this build attention to the people of Montana because everybody that had anything to do with it was trying to keep it very low profile and trying to slip this thing under the radar. And I thought, no, we shouldn't let that happen. So I came up with the idea of, well, let's go occupy Senator Melcher's office in Missoula, right there on Broadway. And so that went over pretty big. So when the rendezvous broke up, some of the people that were committed to help out with this project, we all went to my little cabin there at the foothills of the missions, and I had a telephone line in there at that point. So I was making phone calls like a maniac trying to figure out how to do what needed to be done. So three days later, there was nine of us walked into Senator Melcher's office in Missoula, and I was wearing my cowboy hat and my boots, just like I wear when I'm in the mountains riding. Some of my other buddies were just quite similar. I walked up to the reception desk and I said, we would like to talk to Senator Melcher about this upcoming wilderness bill. And uh, the guy behind the reception desk, he says, well, you can't do that right now. Senator Melcher's not here. And I go, oh, that's okay. We'll wait. And he goes, well, you don't understand. Senator Melcher is out of town and won't be back for several days. I go, well, you don't understand. We'll wait. I think this office back here with the flags on each side of the desk and the leather chairs all around the room would be a really nice place for us to wait. And his eyes got really big. And he goes, no, you-, you can't do that. And he was saying that as we turned our backs to him and walked into this room and said among ourselves, wow, what a great place to wait. We even had some portraits on the wall. We had a great big Montana flag on one side of the desk, and a United States flag on the other side of this big wooden oak desk, I think it was. Nice leather reclining chair behind the desk and all these leather chairs all around the perimeter of the room. It was a perfect place for us to call camp for a little while. By this time, outside where some more of our friends were walking around carrying signs that said honk for wilderness and other things like that, the word was starting to get out to the press that, "Uh uh-oh, something is happening at Senator Melcher's office and nobody really knew what at that point but all of a sudden our press coordinator was getting all sorts of phone calls things were lighting up all over the place while that was going on we went into the office we all sat down made ourselves comfortable and could very much appreciate the fine interior decoration of Senator Melcher's office that night they had special law enforcement team in there And they came in and spoke with us and told us that we were going to be arrested shortly at closing time if we didn't leave. We said, well, that's okay. They tried to scare us out of there in several different techniques. One time they came in and they looked around and they said, is there any children in here? And we go, no, there's no children in here. And then they left like they were going to come in and raid us or something. And they probably didn't know what they were going to do either. I'm sure they were all waiting for word from above but senator melcher he made actually a quite a wise decision at this point i think he made the statement of well my office is underutilized anyway i think it's just fine that they stay there so we ended up staying in his office for two nights and while we were doing this i think we hit every newspaper and television news channel in the united states was covering what we were doing sometimes those people would expect to see something like this in oregon or california but in montana with guys wearing cowboy hats another major ace we had up our sleeve was our spokesman was a fellow named mike bond and he was in there in the office with us and he had ran against senator melcher in the last primary election So he had great notoriety, and if he would have got thrown in jail, they really didn't want that to happen. So I think that might be the only reason they let us stay there. But we were starting to get a little tired with it, but we knew Senator Melcher had to show up to meet with us, because if he didn't, we were in the office, we were creating more news about this issue that they didn't want to see the light of sun, and... Our political consultant was was a fellow named Paul Richards who was really plugged into the press and the political issues of Montana and he was saying okay guys this is what to expect when Senator Melcher comes in to the office he's going to have a stack of papers he's going to put him down on the desk he's going to walk around sit down and say okay boys what's the problem and he suggested that if we could keep him from doing that this would totally tilt the playing field in our favor and we thought hmm that might be a good idea so we decided one of us had to be sitting in senator melcher's chair behind the big wooden desk with a flag on each side all the time and that whoever was sitting there would have to have the gumption to say i'm not moving so we kind of took turns throughout the day and I happened to be sitting in the desk when somebody comes in and said, the senator's here. And all of a sudden, oh, 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 my gosh, it's happened. He's here. And sure enough, he walks in, big pile of papers and folders and books in his hand, sets him down on the desk, and he's very amiable towards us. He goes, oh, how you guys doing? And he walks around. I had one friend standing on one side of me, Larry Campbell and another friend, Steve Smith, standing on the other side of me. First, the senator went around to Steve's side, and Steve kind of stood in his way and just kind of obstructed him just a little bit. He pushed past Steve, and he walked over and said to me, he goes, okay, you'll have to get up now. And I says, no, I'm not gonna do that. And he started to get visibly nervous at this point. I think he was breaking out into a sweat. His hands started to shake. He says, you got to get up now. And I said, Senator, if you would make an appointment, things would go a lot smoother. And I think he nearly lost it at that point. He grabbed my arm, and he tried to pull me up out of the chair. But this Montana boy, don't move. And I just grabbed hold of the arms, and I just sat there. He gets more nervous and frustrated he walks around and goes past Smith he walks around the front of the desk and comes in on Larry Campbell's side and again he crowds past Larry Campbell and I guess he thought he could move me from this side maybe the leverage was better or something I don't know but he grabbed my arm and he was started pulling me up out of the chair you got to get up and just then somebody says press and immediately the senator his whole demeanor changes he puts on his politician face He walks out to the middle of the room because it obviously didn't look very good for him to be sitting behind me, sitting in his chair. About that time the TV cameras came pouring into the room. We had our contingent of people sitting around the, the edge of the room in the chairs, and the senator was walking around in the middle of the room. We wouldn't give him his chair. And we were shooting questions at him, mostly Mike Bond, who was a very articulate questioner. And the senator really didn't have very good answers for any of the questions that we were asking him, and he wasn't prepared. He tried to evade when he could, but he wasn't very successful at it. And the news people, when we seen that news clip at night, it was amazing. The first shot as they opened that whole news clip was a close-up of Senator Melcher wringing his hands in front of him as he paced back and forth in the middle of the room. The whole point of what we did was not to make news, but we needed to make people aware of why we were doing what we were doing. Because this was something that none of us had ever done before. This was all totally new and we were really scared we was going to end up in jail or something, but we felt it was so important that we let the Montana people know that, hey, they are trying to pull the rug over your eyes, they are trying to pull this thing off with nobody knowing it, and what you are going to lose is immeasurable. To have all this wild country never to be considered wild again, that it would be logged, developed, mined, subdivided, or whatever and we just thought that was too much. So one thing we did in this action was we made Montana wilderness and roadless country a household word. And that was what we set out to do. And as soon as the people of Montana became aware of what was going on, there was no way that this bill could survive going through the House and the Senate, and it died where it was. I guess in hindsight, what we did in some way preserved six million acres of roadless land in Montana. Now at the time, we were the only group advocating saving all of it. Everybody was into compromising. And we were saying, no, the compromises have already been made. We got to protect everything that we have. And that was a really radical concept in the environmental movement back then. But It seems like 20 years or so later after that, I'm not sure how many years, but what we considered radical for espousing, President Clinton signed into a presidential mandate the exact same thing that we were trying to accomplish, just protect the roadless lands as they are. So then what we were talking about didn't seem nearly so radical. In hindsight, 20 or so years later.
2: Gary, can you tell me, to you, what is the importance of wilderness? Well, wilderness, it isn't just for people.
3: Although, people can sure get some major benefits out of it. It's for all the wild critters. It's what's natural. We need to have some base to look back on. If everything is developed, we will never know what actual true wild country was so it is being able to preserve these very few pieces of land in the united states that have not already been roaded six million acres may seem like quite a bit but when you can compare it to all of the united states i think there's only like one or two percent of the united states that has not been roaded at this point and that's not very much so we're advocating, and I still do, I advocate we need to protect every every acre of wild country we have for the critters, but for the people. People need a place to escape the rat race of the cities, the industrialization of our country. That's getting harder and harder to do. But with wilderness, all you got to do is you just got to you just walk there, have the gumption to walk there, to ride a horse there, to float through there, but leave the machines behind. Go, go the old way into the old country to experience it at its fullest extent.
2: We are on location in Baja California Sur on the Sea of Cortez with Gary Steele. Gary, thank you so much. For talking with me during this time, and the show is going to continue on next week as well. Gary's going to take us on some really good journeys and adventures. We're going to go on a little multi day paddle up north, I think, and along the way, we'll see if we can do a little bit more recording. Gary, let's end this show, the first one, with three outdoor adventure tips.
3: Never take yourself too seriously. <laughs> know what way the wind's blowing and watch the clouds.
2: Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure and conservation, information and inspiration. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, streaming live at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere... You can find the Trail Less Traveled podcast everywhere podcasts are found. The Trail Less Traveled is a radio and podcast series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world in order to bring you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment storytelling. We are incredibly excited to be collaborating with Explorer Maps. A small family business based in Missoula, Montana, Explorer Maps and the Trailless Traveled are working together to bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. As members of 1% for the Planet, Explorer Maps donates a percentage of proceeds from every product sold to a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world. To date, Explore Maps has donated more than $150,000 to more than 40 different organizations since they began in 2012. Through this unique relationship between Explore Maps and the Trail Less Traveled, we will continue our commitment toward connecting people and place by raising awareness for conservation of wildlife and wild places. You can get involved by supporting Explore Maps they have over 60 hand-drawn story maps. They will be opening their World Headquarters in Missoula, located on the corner of Inez and 3rd Street. And I hope to see you at the grand opening, because I'm currently in Africa, and I'm working on a project with Game Rangers International in Zambia, and I will be providing a free multimedia adventure presentation at the new Explorer Map store on Saturday, November 18th at 7pm. If you've ever had a question for me regarding adventure, travel, or the past 20 years of recording The Trail Less Traveled, this would be a great opportunity to come and ask me a question in person. So set the date, Saturday, November 18th at 7pm. I will see you at the new Explorer Maps store. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, please remember... Conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed and get engaged. Use your voice on behalf of wildlife and wild places. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito.